As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. About the same age, honestly, despite their eight-year difference. <laughs> so, how's your guys' day been? Or weekend? Uh, it's actually been good. We haven't done a whole lot. Uh, well, I say we haven't done a whole lot. Not a lot physically. We're getting uh, ready to do some, got some other business things coming up and ideas. And so we've been busy doing that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, yeah. And that, that's entrepreneurial kind of business ideas or yeah yeah i'm actually one of the things that i'm doing is actually starting uh to put the apologetic stuff into into view and so i'm working on some pdfs and things to get my unbashedly resolute brand um working oh yeah so and i'm going to edit do do a, a second edition of the book so Nice. Yeah. And so I'm doing a PDF on six of the most, not the most common, but six of, I think, the most, uh, yeah, probably the most common logical fallacies we see in the everyday and kind of tackling those. But I tackle them from a Sherlockian perspective. So uh, now it's not to get political or it's not to get weird with them. In a sense, I... Uh, I create Sherlock scenarios where these logical fallacies happen either to criminals or to Sherlock and he's able to navigate through them. So it's kind of a, a twist on how I see apologetics being used and things. So yeah, like, like the primer. Yeah. You, you mentioned some of that, but it is what's, it is what's needed, man. I mean, just kind of 20, 21st century approach to Apologetics, and I think your push on imagination, you know, being infused with it, I think it's pretty, very C.S. Lewis-y esque. Yeah, yeah. Nina and I were having a conversation, and she was like, "How are you going to?" She was kind of saying, "So, how does the apologetics thing work with what you're doing with literature and and philosophy and things?" I was like, "Well, basically, I'm trying to become C.S. Lewis." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they belong together. They fit together at various points in history well. We just kind of fell into like a 50 or 60 year period where we were kind of like ditched all that stuff and went into modern. Hold on a second there. You, you've, I've lost the audio. 
Can you hear me? I now? hear you now. Yeah, it like buzzed and then it like cut out. No, that's weird. Yeah, man. Well, good luck on all of that. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right. The 50 year hiatus, we, we went into hyper modernity. Um, yeah. And became super rational, and to the we point. Played the rationalist game. Yeah. You know, where we probably should have stuck to our own. And then we we went to uh, sterility, where where it's it's so dry that it can't actually sustain itself, and then. We went to postmodernism, which is like, there are no limits, there are no categories, go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you, you always, truth, truth will out, as, as the old saying goes. Truth always, uh, we always find a way back yeah. to, to truth. And so, no matter how far somebody pushes this way, the pendulum will always swings. And, you know, hopefully we catch it when it's on the, on the, on the swing. Uh, and that right, that yeah. right thing. Um, I'm going to flip on a light, see if I can, I feel like I look rather uh, dead. All right. Yeah, it's a little bit better. Okay, yeah. As as uh, there's felt a, like I was a little Tim Burtony for my taste. Uh, we watched a little bit of New Girl, and uh, there's an episode where she, uh, one person tells a, a character he looks like a wood carving of himself. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah. Like I said, that's why I feel like that today. Actually. So. Right. <laughs> oh man. Um. So I was I was so, thinking. Yeah. As uh, as those of you that we're just we're just jumping into this, this is the Jack and Baron show, and I'm I'm Wes Mullins. I'm Randy Hardman, and we're just kind of rabbit trailing and uh, going on some topics that are near and dear to us, or things that we're we're wrestling through, and we wrestle through it together. But uh, so we're finishing up Frankel and. The, the Verum Fabula group, the Fab, Verum Fabula Fellowship. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts on, I don't know if we really finished up Frankel or not. We kind of hit some things, but I just wonder if there's anything else lingering there that you were like, coming from a sociological background, is there anything still lingering in Frankel that, that's on your mind? Uh, <laughs> all of Frankel. <laughs> all of all of Frankel lingers all the time. Yeah. Uh, and my, we have you and I haven't really gotten the chance to like work through that. Of course, I missed, I missed last week, but, uh, I don't know, man. I mean, this is just, I'm, I was reading again through some of this today and it's just one of those, like, you know, this, like I said, I've, this is my, my third time through this book and, you know, I mean, you can just kind of see like every, every single page on here, you know, it's got something underlined, but in different, in different kinds of underlinings, you know? So it's just like, you see something fresh every single time that you, you read it. And, you know, especially the more that you kind of are exposed to, you know, things throughout the course of, you know, your years or whatnot, things that you don't pick up on, but, you know, he, he, you know, you'll pick up on later, like, 
oh, that's that's the connection, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, there was this one thing that that I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, I'm, I've recently taught Maslowian hierarchy to a group okay, of yeah. students, and <clears throat> you know, there's something about you know, of course, there's all these sorts of theories of of human uh you know what he called self-actualization right is this like you know how do we free people basically from the shackles of you know i think it was rousseau that you know man man is born free and is always in chains or something like that you know and it's always this question of like how do we how do we become free right and maslow of course is like the pyramid five Mm -hmm. sections and your bottom is you know your food and your shelter and your water and then, you know, you get that and then you move up the ladder and you hit, you know, self-respect and esteem. And then, you know, the top, the top pinnacle is like self-actualization where you can be who you are meant to be. And I think they say like 1% of people or less than 1% of people ever like really reach that. Right. And the interesting thing is like, I remember when I last I was teaching that and I thought, I'm not sure that's Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, is we meet all of these other things, food, shelter, water, you know, like our enough money, you know, uh, self-respect. We, we get up to a path in life where we figure out like, this is what we want to do in life. And all of a sudden we reach this like pinnacle of like, now I am who I'm supposed to be. Right. Which always, you know, having gone to seminary, like you, people kind of wreak that like desire for like, you know, in my calling, not be who I want to be, all that kind of stuff. It's that kind of American dream. But he writes this this thing in here where, you know, he's talking about, uh, let me find the page here. Um, of course, I've lost it now. Oh, but, uh, oh yeah, right here. Um, he's talking about uh, the, 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 love and and the poets and stuff like that he's got this passage that says a thought a thought transfixed me for the first time in my life i saw the truth as it was set into song by so many poets proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers the truth that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire then i grasped the meaning of the great secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have had to impart that salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. He's talking about his wife there. In a position of utter desolation when man cannot express himself in positive action, when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right way, in honorable way, in such a position Man can, through loving contemplation of the image he carries of his beloved, achieve fulfillment. Wow. And I was just like, concentration camp, Frankel. You know, he's talking about this moment where, like, he's he's walking down these train tracks and, you know, him and the other prisoners are just, like, their minds are not with their duties. It's with the people that they love, you know, and he's thinking of his wife and he's like, I don't even know if she's alive, but we're having this conversation and we're thinking and she's speaking to me and I'm speaking to her. Um, 
and even goes so far as to say, like, honestly, it wouldn't even matter if I knew that she was dead or not, which she was, you know, but he was like, the fact is, like, that's where love does not stop at death. And, you know, for him to say, like, when you grasp that image, right, when you grasp love, that purity of love in that time, that's where... Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Man's fulfillment is actually met. It's it's just a stark contrast from, from Maslonian hierarchy because they should be at the very bottom of that, right? No, no shelter, no food, you know, like no safety. There's no safety, you know, like all of that is stripped away. And yet they've been able to like, in this moment, at least like reach that top pinnacle. And I just thought like, yeah, <laughs> that, that's what, that's what Christian theology is. That's what faith teaches is that honestly, all of those other things, and it's not to say that we shouldn't pursue those things, but all of those other things are not the prerequisites for being who God has called us to be. Mm. I mean, I'm just thinking about the Chesterton pointing out all the paradox with inside Christianity to live is to die, to, to, to get is to give and the up is down. You know, it's this notion of everything that we, we can systematically figure out about how life works God flips it on his head and says it actually doesn't work that way. I know it seems to work that way. Newtonian physics, we can go to the moon on t- Newtonian physics, but but actually quantum mechanics is the undergirding of Newtonian physics, which, you know, molecules can bounce in and out of uh, existence uh, almost seemingly random randomly. And, you know, it's Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty actually is the undergirding of Newtonian physics and relativity. And you're going, this, that doesn't make any sense. Um and it's this notion of there's much more mystery to this life. And if you try to yeah. systematize it, you're going to kill it off and you're going to create some, some hyper-rational, sterile thing like the NICE was doing in that hideous strength. I think about, the, you know, uh, Philostrato was talking to, to Mark Studdick and, and that hideous strength. And he says, can you imagine mountains so sharp they would pierce you? And landscapes so clean, there would be no germ or microbe on it at whatsoever. And that if you died, you would simply turn into a pile of dust. But there would be no wind to blow you away. You would simply exist forever as that pile of dust. And he was excited and happy about this non-human type of life and experience. Because, And you think about that and you go, well, you've missed the whole purpose of us being here. You've, you've missed the beauty that you can have by engaging in love, by engaging in and having someone love you and realizing that it's not in the security of the things that we think that we need, but it's in the security of no. So it's like I can come to this understanding of, of surrounding myself with my, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I'm supposed to be. And yet my my validity of who I am, my identity is actually in Christ. 
And once I realize that my identity is in him, what happens to me here is of little consequence. Yeah. And yeah, and I think that's, I think that's, that's what reveals a stark contrast between, you know, humanism mm-hmm. and what, what, what Christianity really teaches, you know. And I think as long as we continue to operate right, our, our whole enlightenment, you know, project basically on like the aspirations of humanism, then of course, then, you know, things like, you know, uh, our sociological theories are, are the best that we're going to have, right? And then we look at things that, that, you know, even something like this, right? And we look at this kind of stuff and it becomes very, very, very difficult for us to see through something like an Auschwitz or something like a Holocaust or something like a tragedy for us to see anything but um, but but those ashes, right? But to see just, you know, the nihilism that's in that, right? To see the hopelessness and, and you know, I think, of course, we see that on the other side of that, but I think this kind of stuff is perplexing, you know? Like, yeah. Frankl is per- perplexing to a certain stride of existentialists, right? And he falls within that existentialist camp, but it's yeah, a different kind of existentialism, right? Is that... Uh, and, and I think that's it's this continual tension between human existentialism and, and the transcendent, you know, transcendently based existentialism. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, well, humanism on its face and even nihilism on its face isn't robust enough to to withstand the questions of of, of human existence and and. The, the meaning of existence, it, it can't bear the weight of it and it falls underneath of it. Even David Foster Wallace, the, the famed atheist, said, if you don't have, if you're not living for a purpose or reason, you don't have some teleology, teleological thing undergirding you that, that you can fall back on, then why, why not commit suicide? Why allow yourself to go through any suffering? He said, unless you have the four noble truths, unless you have Jesus Christ, unless you have uh, the Torah or Allah or something deeper than yourself, then this is a foolish game and why put yourself through it at all? There's, there's no benefit to it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other things that, that I was really interested in what he said in this book is he talked about the, you know, he talked about there, there, there are certain people that just like they've lost all hope, you know? And he was like, those are frustrating people. He said the other, the ones who are far more frustrating are the people that are, naively optimistic all the time <laughs> I thought, mm. oh my gosh i can resonate a hundred percent with that you know uh you know growing up in the church and still being a part of the church and stuff like that there's this like there's this disparity where you don't want to be like you know in the midst of in the midst of tragedy and difficult you know woe is me all the time you know i mean that's just that that's just that's, there's a gravity there that just doesn't seem like okay you can remove them from this like you become stuck and there's nowhere to go you know ever um, but there's there's the ones uh, that just you know are are stuck for a moment but just continually say like you know continually continually beat the drum of like hope and and all this kind of stuff that's after that and I and I guess there's this. You know, I have tattooed here, of course, like memento mori, right? 
And sometimes people think that that's like a, a despair, you know, that that's, that's hopeless. And I think, you know what? No, it's not that it's, it's realism. Right. And I think that's what I really like about Frankel is that his, his approach towards meaning and transcendence is not based on idealism. Um, it is based in reality. Right. He doesn't say like the nihilists do, like there's nothing mm-hmm. to put our hope in. There's the optimism, you know, is, is worthless. I think even uh, Ernst Becker said, you know, there is a difference between, you know, being, being, a, being a pessimist and, and being, a, being a nihilist, basically, is that being a pessimist, at least there's like, there's room for hope in that, you know, being a nihilist, there's just, right. you got nothing, you know. And I'm like, I think. When you read Frankel, you kind of catch some of that where you're like, but Frankel is not saying, he's not giving us like, everything is going to be okay. I, you never hear that in Frankel, that everything is going to be okay. You hear him say, sometimes it's not okay. And that is okay. You know? And and I think that's a massive message. I mean, because I sit here and, uh, you know, somebody once asked me, you know, in the midst of just some life stuff that's happened to us, we'll sing sometimes in church, you know, um, that song that, uh, you know, uh, just talks about the goodness of God over and over and over again. I'm trying to remember the lyrics of it, but, you know, like, you know, you're so good, good, good to me, you know, good, good, good to me. It's but it was like, how do you feel about that song? And I thought, I struggle a lot with that song, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because I think being part of being a human and being part of, you know, committing yourself to the journey is recognizing that Jesus is going to let you down, you know, and that it's not always goodness that happens. And, you know, God knows if we came to some of these people and said, Oh, it's going to be okay. You know, right. Like we're, giving people false messages that don't really accord themselves well with Christian ideology. But the opposite side of that, you don't want to say, you know, let's poo-poo on anything, all meaning, all hope, throw it out the door, you know, because he says those are the people that don't survive. Right. If you don't have, so I, I, I think that, I think that there is a, a way to, so if I get this right, you're talking about people who, no matter what happens, they are, what you're saying, seemingly burying themselves in the head in the sand and just going, I refuse to think this bad thing's happened to me and kind of moving past and just going, it's it's all good. It's all good without ever being introspective and going, hey, this sucks. This is, this thing was, this thing hurt. Um, it was either that or people who, who <clears throat> haven't experienced that kind of darker side of life who want to come to people who are in kind of the midst of something people that will walk up to the gates of an Auschwitz, right? Right. And go back home, you know, it's like, what messages do they convey to the people inside, you know? Um, and I think that's a continual challenge for us that, you know, most of us are, you know, uh, you know, you or I or anybody, no matter what has happened to us, we're, we're probably never going to ever find ourselves in a situation like this. But, you know, what would we say to those that are in a situation like this? If we could, one thing could be said, what would we say? I, you know, yeah, I don't think that we say, hmm. would we say it's, it's going to be okay? It's going to be all right. You know, 
or would we say it's not going to be all right? Or is there that middle ground, you know, the middle place to give hope in the midst of reality? Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I think you have to give, I mean, I think that you have to give hope. I always think about Nelson Mandela. You know, in prison for, what was it, 27 years or whatever, 17 years or 20-some some number like that. And he came out completely healed of, of the torment and, forgive, and giving forgiveness. Now, that was a process. And I, and I think that's what we're, I think that's what we're getting at here is that kind of optimism has to come from a process if you just wholesale optimism and it hasn't been earned in a sense and you're just giving it away and saying, hey, it's going to be all right. But you have no idea what the process of getting to that all right point is. I think that might be different than going, hey, I've been in a, and I've been in prison. I've been this. And here are here are here's the process of finding joy in hope through adversity. There is a way to find yeah. hope in adversity. Um but you're going to have to reconcile the fact that you're in adversity. Right. Um, and so there's, there's some, yeah, there's some sort of, there's some sort of uh, ground in there where it's like you, you have to acknowledge that you're in the grief, you know, that's, it's, well, what you say is that, that pointing out that it's, it's the joy, right? It's the, uh, I don't want, I don't want to say our affection, but, but that's as close as I can come right now. You know, that, that, you know, our joy is what we're after, right? The, how we process things, how we, how we think about things, how we evaluate whatever it is that's happening to us seems to be a, a far more secure ground to convey hope mm-hmm. in than the circumstances, right? Yeah. Because, the circumstances, and this is where I think people are sometimes often confused, right? Is because people sometimes think joy is going to be connected with your circumstances. So mm, we yes. want to give you hope that your circumstances will change and you'll find joy after that. And I think what books like this do or say, your circumstances may never change. Right. You know, as they said, they didn't know, they for all they thought, you know, Day every day was going to be like the day before. It was going to be like the day before and the day before, all the way until they eventually die. You know, and people will come, you know, and say, "Well, you know, it looks like it's about to end." And everybody would say, "Well, yeah, we've heard that like a million times before." We don't believe it, right? And it's like when you lose that, but yet they still found meaning to live 
day after day after day after day, even though though they believed that it wasn't ever going to end. You know, yeah. how do you do that? Because it's like you said, like a whole lot of nihilists would say, well, your better solution at that point would be to to off yourself. You know, and yet I find it remarkable about this book and this testimony that so often he puts to humor being part and parcel of their life to just levity you know i think i think there was even one point in this book where i was reading today where he said something about you know the 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 occasional the usual grumbling about you know petty little things you know like even that didn't stop you know (laughs) uh there's just like there's some sense of like normalcy that can still be connected with the most adverse circumstances and joy can still be connected with the most adverse circumstances. And our hope is to be placed in the midst of that and not circumstantially, you know, situated. Yeah. So you know, the, the flippancy of, 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 uh, of un, a sort of unearned hope of going, ah, it'll be fine. Instead of going, these are where I find myself. How can I find, where can I find the joy of the Lord here? Where can I find this? And then how can I implement that into my life? I think that's, uh, because he, he talks about humor here in page 44, which to me is one of the most, compe- the whole thing's amazing. I mean, like you, I've, I've read it a hundred times. Um, not a hundred times, but I've read it. Uh, and but there's one one thing on page 44 where he says, the attempt to develop a sense of humor and to see things in a humorous light is some kind of trick learned while mastering the art of living. And I'm like, that applies to anybody's circumstance. It's like, is that levity you're talking about? Oh, okay, this is bad. I can grumble and gripe about silly stuff or, or I can learn to find humor. And when I learn to find humor, suddenly life gets a little easier to live. Yet it's possible to practice the art of living even in a concentration camp, although the suffering is omnipresent. To draw an analogy, a man's suffering is similar to the behavior of gas. If a certain quantity of gas is pumped into an empty chamber, it will fill the chamber completely and evenly no matter how big the chamber. Thus suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind and no matter whether the suffering is great or little, therefore the size of the human suffering is absolutely relative. There's a massive statement coming from somebody who comes from Auschwitz because at that point it was really easy to minimize the suffering in other people and say it's it's it doesn't even compare, you know. We do that with with people today. We're like, oh, you kids don't know about suffering. You don't know about about life, and 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 yet when someone is not apprised of certain amount of suffering, the minute they feel, or the minute that they contemplate a situation into this causes pain, I'm suffering. And they place the meaning of suffering on an event or an event brings about the introspective notion I'm suffering. It fills the entirety of the body. It's like stubbing your little toe. Suddenly the entire body is filled with pain and that's all you can focus on is that little toe. And, <laughs> and but the thing is, the capacity of our consciousness and the capacity of our, of our being there is no, there is no uh, limit to our capacity of suffering. Um, it just continues to fill the box and fill the box and fill the box. And it fills it evenly, whether there's a little bit, one drop, or there's thousands and ten thousands of gallons of suffering, it fills the box the same. 
And, yeah. and that's just an, um, it's an amazing introspective notion that, to have empathy for others. Like you said, that is just incredible because when you come out, you realize that. So there's, there's this notion that Donald Miller had. He says there's several kinds of characters in a book. He goes, there's the hero, there's the villain, there's the everyman, there's the victim, and there's like one other. He says, what's interesting is the victim never gets to transform. There is no transformation for the victim. Yeah. Everybody else in the book can transform. They can, they can, they can transcend and uh, up and down. The victim, as long as they're the victim, they remain the victim. But if you can have that empathy and go, I've had suffering, but other people have had suffering as well. That also gives you the freedom to come out of the victim into something that is uh, akin to flourishing. Yeah, and I guess that's where true empathy can can start because again, you know, we've talked a lot, you know, in other um, other podcasting groups about one for ones, you know. But mm-hmm. this is this is an example of if we are saying that person's suffering has to be one for one, you know, then you know, whoever therapist you're going to work with better have experienced the same kind of crap that you have right. in your life, you know, master that you go, you know, learn under a better have experienced the same kind of thing, you know? And, uh, and I think that it, you know, like even as a parent, you know, you're, you're a parent and you know that it's easy sometimes to trivialize your kid's suffering, right? Absolutely. That somebody is just like your two year old, let's just even say your two year old, right. That you take something away from them and it's just like, blah, right. It was a part of being a parent that's kind of humorous about that, you know, yes, and it is. But you have to recognize that, like, those are full emotions that just went into like. That's real. As, I mean, imagine if you were if you were an adu- as as an adult to feel the that depth of emotion, right? Over anything, you know, it would just be like, oh my gosh, you know, like that deserves some compassion, you know, even just to realize it. Now, of course, like. Luckily, children don't remember anything, so you can laugh a little bit about it. But mm. in this light, but but uh, in general, it just means like, yeah. I mean, thank God for people like Frankel who can who can not write about, not say, "Here's what I went through." Therefore, you know, tell the rest of you guys, you got nothing to complain about. You know, we have a guy who says, "Here's what I went through, and here's what I learned," and I want to bring this back because even though the 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 numerical kind of depth of suffering may not have reached most people, you know, like you, you get in a car crash or something like that and, right. and you go through, or you, you've lost your, your job or your marriage falls apart or, you know, your, your kid has a disability or something like that. You know, like those are, those are very deep and very few of us would look at that and say, well, that compares with, you know, four years in Auschwitz watching your family be gassed, you know, spending years under Nazi rule and almost starving to death. Like very few of us would compare that um, in depth to, to, to one for one. And yet he comes back with lessons and says, like, we're all in this together. Yeah. What you I've know? learned can we're help you. And that's why it resonates. I mean, I'm like, this is why this book resonates because if, if he was speaking one off to, to his own sufferings that didn't apply here, you know, we'd find no use for his book. 
No, it, it would it wouldn't land because it, it would it, like I say it would it would be. Uh, so I, I have this part of my literary theory that I'm working on says that that things that nourish the body, things books that are that are necessary for human flourishing have three criteria, at least three of these criteria that I have. One is it's prescriptive. It says the yep. way things ought to be. It's descriptive. It says the way things are. And it's prescriptive and says the way things can be or will be if certain things are followed. And so I think Frankel's like, hey, this is, this is the way things should be. Uh, here's the way things are. But here's the way things can be. And he gives mm-hmm. that circumspect uh, presentation to go. My logo therapy, therapy works for SS guards. It works for Jewish prisoners. It works for a single mother. It works for whoever's looking for purpose and meaning. Logo therapy works. It, it actually uh, helps helps increase human flourishing. But if it didn't, and you you said it only works for Auschwitz prisoners, then it would be of no use to the rest of the world, and it wouldn't be a twelve million copies sold. Yeah. Yeah, yours, yours has that little sticker on it too. Yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> it's very specific. Have you read Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning? I have not. It's it's the sequel. Um, it is straight up. Sometimes I'm re- so I'm listening to it while I'm you know working around the house and cutting grass and stuff. It is. I, there's been times I've had to stop it and just almost catch my breath. Because he talks about the existentialism there, the spiritual existentialism, and he talks about responsibility being the essence of, of being human and just all these things that, that you and I, we've talked about and all the things that we've talked about in VFF, and it's like all coming to a head from a different discipline of psychology. All the stuff that Lewis talks about, all the stuff that Tolkien and, and all these guys are talking about, it actually comes through on the psychological aspect, and you hear Frankel, I, I look and go, did... Did, did Lewis listen, read a lot of Frankel? Because I I hear the same echoes. I've wondered that too. <laughs> so it, it it may be the fact of just that when you hit a vein of truth, it's just truth, no matter who says it. And when it pops up again and again and again, it's not necessarily that Frankel influenced Lewis, but that they were hitting on the same veins from different perspectives. Yeah, and they lived through not not the same. Uh, well, they lived through the same time periods, you know, but, but different experiences, but nonetheless, that kind of wartime, wartime experiences of having to wrestle with, you know, lots of family and friends and, you know, that your, that own jeopardy to your own sense of security as well. Cause I know, I know Jung influenced Lewis. But I can't find yep. a reference to Frankel anywhere. But I, I, I mean, it's almost like he's he's copying Frankel verbatim sometimes. And I'm like, wow, that's that's. I think you're right. Though. I think that there's a hint, a hit on the same kind of truth. Of course, Frankel too. We have to remember that Frankel uh, was reared in psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. and of course, you see Freud all over Lewis. You know him him engaging with those concepts and stuff like that too. Yeah. So I'm I'm sure that that's where that's where some parallel is as well. Is exactly uh, even though Frankel is no Freudian, um, you know there's still still some of that. You know how does how does the how does the past how do your events in your past speak into who you are now? Man, Frankel deals with Freud. I think almost systematically in a knockdown argument with with Freud and basically says that you know you 
you can't be the thing you're repressing. Like, you know, he's talking about sexual repression. And he says that if a building is made of, of bricks, you wouldn't say also that the builder is made of bricks. And to say, yeah. that, to say that your psyche is just made up of, of repression is not to say that you are, are, are made of repression. Right. And he says, you can't even say, Franklin begins to say, you can't even say yourself or myself because you're not made up of yourself. You are self. And it's this different yeah. concept. And suddenly you're just like going, my gosh, is, like, is, is that Lewis? Because that sounds so <laughs> like uh, the, the sum of the, the sum of the whole, the sum of the, the sum, not the sum of the parts. And it's talking about, you know, most, most hyper rationalist and Freud and all these people dissect humanity down to the atomization of, of individual parts and says, no, right. we're the sum of our parts. But Frankel and Lewis come around and say, no, no, we're the sum of the sum. Like, right. they're, 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 we might have aspects, but without the full coming together of those aspects, you don't have self. And we're the sum of the entire thing, not individually. You can, you can diagnose each individual part and put us together and say, this plus this plus this plus plus equals Randy. It's like, no, 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 this is Randy. Randy equals Randy. And there is no... Well, and that's- and that's what I thought on, on page 32, there was this interesting little uh, just caveat there. He talked about, you know, sexual desires in the camp. And he said the sexual urge was generally absent. There is little sexual perversion. You know, even in his dreams, the prisoner did not seem to concern himself with sex, although his frustrated emotions and his finer, higher feelings did find definite expression in them. I thought that was really interesting that, you know, sex, sex itself. And when you talk about Freud, right. And, you know, Arbeitum Leiba, right. Right. Uh, Work and love basically are, are what man is, you know, made to do. And, uh, and, you know, here, here Frankel is saying like, and of course he's saying this too. I mean, the irony of course, is he's saying that's under, under a gate that says Arbeit Mach Frey. Oh my gosh. I hate that phrase. Free. And, you know, he seems to be saying like, uh, you know, sex. No, uh, of course, you know the the Freudian term is love, you know, libo. But you know, there mm-hmm. is kind of reduction of sleep. You know, Freud Freud meant a lot of sex, sexual repression, all that kind of stuff, right? So he's saying like that wasn't found there, but those lower feelings and those higher feelings, all those expressions did find their way into the dreams, right? The subconscious levels. So it was just really interesting yeah. that they kind of like poo-pooed a little bit on Freudian sexual theory, you know? And, uh, and yet, and yet I wonder, and this is just an off, off shoot, you know, not to say that that Arbeit Mach Frey, you know, slogan, I mean, that is just such an, an atrocious, devilish, um, because we know what the Nazis meant by that. Right. Um, but Freud seems, or Victor seems to be pointing out that, you know, like there, there was some sense of like continual purpose, continual duty, you know, that they still continued to go out and do this kind of stuff day after day, after day, after day. And even though like psychologically, mentally, spiritually, they were somewhere else that there was some sort of like maybe freedom that was connected with just doing, 
right? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. That's just an offset. I'd have to really like spend a lot of time on that because I, I don't want to make it sound like I think that the Nazis were right in their psychoanalysis of the human condition. But we all, oh, you know, most of us do recognize that you know we we are made with a purpose as well, and so we are made to do and to act and to and to you know stuff. So he, he doesn't shy away from. From that, so right. I just see that there's some wrestling there with with Freud. Well, and Freud also he started wrestling that that was that was good was there, the subconscious, like making us aware of the subconscious. Now, I mean, from what I've read, which isn't a ton, but I've I've read commentary about Freud, is that he he really misses it because I read Frankl and I read Jung and I read better understandings of subconscious than drives. Uh, these yep. repressed drives, and you read, you, you read, uh, even Franklin in Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning, he says there is unconscious, there is subconscious, and there is preconscious. And you say, oh wait, yep. what? And you say, and he's like, we can't even understand who we are because we can't plumb the depths of the unconscious. And there's more unconscious about us than there is its conscious. So for us to even say, like you mentioned earlier, I'm going to be who I'm supposed to be. If there is more buried in our unconscious self. Then that we are can even we can't even introspectively look at. We have no clue really in that who we truly are. We can see types and shadows like a paper fire or paper snow, but to actually tap into what we truly are, then 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 we're lost unless we have some other thing to guide us. Mm-hmm. So I don't know this dude. I'm telling you, that man's search for ultimate meaning is just a beast of a book. Oh. I'll have to check it out, but I think, you know, your opening question, and I know we're getting pretty close to the end here, but your opening question about, you know, are there any, are there any things that are left hanging for you with <laughs> Frankel? And I think the honest truth is if you read Frankel, everything should be hanging, you know, most things should be hanging uh, still. And this is why, you know, when Lewis talks about reading well, you know, he's not talking yeah. about reading, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books throughout one's life. He's talking about reading the, the best books, you know? Um, and this is one of the, that I just recently kind of put together a list of like, what are, what are the 10 books that I need to read every single year for the rest of my life? And this is one of those. So, um, I'm glad that we're doing this. Um, and, uh, I don't know what we're moving on to next, but yeah, I, it all, it all, it all flows strangely. Yeah, there's been so many cool things that have just kind of kind of flown together and and been stitched. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think the next Zoom meeting uh, with VFF, we're going to finish up Man Search for Meaning with the group, just uh, because the uh, the camp we the campfire we had was not. Um, it was more catch up time than it was actual diving into uh, specifics. So uh, actually. I'm thinking about presenting maybe a, a Sherlockian uh, story to go over to whet everyone's appetite because most people aren't familiar with Sherlock. And uh, I think that there's a lot. Yeah, you're like, I have no idea. There's a lot to be there's a lot to be gleaned from Mr. Holmes. Um, of course, that's that's the basis of one of my, my theses. So, uh, of course, I'm big on him. But I'm working on my Sherlock mustache or my my investigative mustache there. It's looking good, man. The, handle, the, the handles haven't come in yet, but I'm not going to have handles on mine, but <laughs> this, uh, this is going to conclude the, the night. I've been Jack. 
I've been barren. We'll see you later, guys. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.